on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. This is Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, as you can imagine, there's really only one thing on our collective minds right now. And to give you some relief from the horrific news coming out of Ukraine, we'll take the majority of this episode to talk about politics and opera, because those two things go together like peanuts and Cracker Jacks. But first, we have to address the soprano in the room. That's right. The war apologist slash cookbook author slash wannabe dictator lover slash soprano. And that big old foot she's stuck in her mouth yet again, plus two minute drill. Actually, you know what? Let's give the drill a week off so it can join the protests. Hey, if you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Get that full show, Stitcher, Spotify, click follow, Apple Podcasts. You just hit the plus sign. You too can send us that voice memo. Email us, that hot take, operaboxscoregmail.com. Get that merch, OBS Beer Coaster, OBS Lapel Pin, just for sharing your hot take. Oliver Camacho, there you are. Here I am. Yes, it's it's tough times and... um... I don't know what to say right now. So I just, uh, why don't you go on to the next person? <laughs> that would be Matt Cummings. He is on the show, but he's not in the opening lineup. So that makes uh, Weston Williams next. Oh, cool. I get to lighten the mood. Hi, uh, <laughs> I, I'm here in my bunker. I'm fine so far. Uh, and hopefully we all will be soon. But I do want to say that uh, for this particular show, obviously we are not qualified to talk about much about the political situation going on right now. And the situation is changing so rapidly that uh, all of our information is going to be out of date by the time this episode goes out (laughs) anyway. So uh, hello from a few days ago. If you're seeing this and everything's fine now, that's great. If not, not it's over. Yay. Putin gave up. (laughs) (laughs) But but we are qualified. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Ashley. Hardgrave. (laughs) Well, I didn't realize that cracking jokes about Russian kidnapping just six weeks ago was going to land us here, but uh, <laughs> apparently... Yeah. Sorry, guys. You did Didn't well. I realize that was going to happen. You did well, kid. I'll, I'll lighten the mood. So I started playing in a, uh, a pickup ice hockey league this morning. Oh. I've, I've, I'm a pretty good skater. I've, you know, I play a little bit of hockey, and um, so I'm in a pickup hockey league now, first time out, with a whole bunch of guys who are way bigger and way faster than me. And can I just say that like- but you've got that hair. They they think you're taller I do have the, the David Lynch so. hair, but right now, like my thighs and calves are absolutely on fire. Oh, we're talking about your thighs. Thighs and calves all <laughs> I am just like burning. If this was the 18th century, who boy, I'd be fainting right now. He's Literally, swole. George is swole right now from the I waist down. I am burning from the waist down right now. <laughs> Let's you know, talk some... It's... <laughs> I'm sorry, I was afraid to let it land on. A... I'm burning from the waist down right now. Um, I will say though, since we are just on the uh, other side of the Winter Olympics, it's really amazing to me how many cold weather sports are so reliant on legs and leg power. You think about speed skating, you think about hockey, also curling. The one time that I was given mm-hmm. a curling lesson and I learned to throw the stone, I couldn't walk for like two days afterwards because my legs were so sore. Let's all walk over to Opera Land and talk some opera. 
So as always, we are recording on Monday. Uh, it's about 7.30 p.m. in Chicago. It's February 28th. Uh, a lot of stuff has gone down um, and a lot of stuff will continue to go down. And we don't know what the situation will be when you hear this episode. But we can talk about some of the definite things that have happened in our community, uh, namely opera companies like Teatro dell'Opera di Roma and the Bayerische Staatsoper and Finnish National Opera all expressing their solidarity with Ukraine, mm-hmm. with uh, Putin friend, conductor Valery Gergiev, losing all of his jobs and even his... All of uh, them. Even his agents saying, you know what? <laughs> yeah. Find, an, find yeah. another manager, you know? Literally like all of his jobs. Yeah. The, the Met ha- has uh, also gotten rid of every pro, uh, obviously pro-Putin artist on their roster for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Which and their is, Lohengrin uh, has had the Bolshoi in it, so they're going to yeah, have to scrap yeah. that production, the one that was supposed to be planned for next season. And of course... And they're going to have to build their sets themselves now. Yeah, uh, of course, there's the Anna Trepko issue, and uh, she and her husband, UC, I forget his last name, uh, were going to Who give knows? a recital, and there were protests, so they canceled the recital, and they made like a, a nothing burger statement. And then <laughs> Anna Trepko felt even more pressure to like say something personal about how she feels about all this and she She didn't feel pressure she just wanted to hear herself talk (laughs) and she basically said i don't like war but i'm not a politician and you know a musician shouldn't be forced to like be political you know so she didn't really step away from her position she just said she doesn't like war you know so we got a really fantastic response to that by the brilliant social media maven and amazing pianist Igor Lovett. He said, being a musician does not free you from being a citizen, from taking responsibility, from being a grown-up, remaining vague when one man, especially the man who is the leader of your home country, starts a war against another country, and by doing so also causes greatest suffering to your home country and your people, is unacceptable. P.S. Never never bring up music and you're being a musician as an excuse do not insult art thank you igor levitt look yeah i I mean the challenge for me on this is well and i before we get too in the weeds i think it's terribly important to put a line of demarcation between russians and pro-putinists because i think those are two different populations of people Uh, there's there's a lot of talk around about you know don't have Russian this and expel Russian students. No, no, that's that doesn't help anyone. Um, but folks that have been vocally in support over the last, I don't know, decade of someone who is now currently an active war criminal, I think that's a whole other thing altogether. And I, it's it's no secret how I feel about Anna Netrebko, and it would be incredibly easy for me to do like a stereotypically angry Ashley rant right about here. Um, but I'm Trademarked. real tired yes. and, and can't and the one and a half spoons I have left, I won't spend on yelling about her, but I will say that there is a difference between saying that you don't want war, which basically everybody except one person on the planet can say with confidence and being absolutely vocally in support of the one person on this planet who actually does in fact 
want war. And there are receipts. Uh, 2011 Newsweek article when you addressed the idea of being his lover and you said that you would have loved to have been because he has such a strong male energy. Or in 2012 when you were on the list of 499 trusted people of Vladimir who were officially authorized to campaign for him in his presidential election. Uh, And most certainly not in 2014 right after the invasion of Crimea when you gave a check of 1 million rubles to an opera house in Donetsk in the care of a pro-Kremlin separatist leader, which, by the way, you were photographed with him holding a separatist flag. So there's a difference in being that political for a decade and then posting a now disappeared Instagram story that says you don't think that it's fair that musicians get are forced to be called political. It didn't bother you a decade ago. It didn't bother you 10 minutes ago. I'm not really sure why it bothers you now. I mean, look, here's the thing, right? All theater is political, right? That's like the first thing you learn in theater school. So I don't know why Anna Netrebko thinks that she's not in the politics biz, right? All yeah. theater is political, whether you like it or not. Especially in more. Russia, <laughs> you absolutely, know? Absolutely. It's like the birthplace of political theater, you know? But further, furthermore, like, this is your chance. This is actually your chance, right? right? And I, I also want to, like, point out, like, there are, like, I will say, I do understand it is difficult in Russia to be outwardly outspokenly anti-Putin. But and I want to highlight that there is uh, there is a lot of very brave people going around right now. Uh, There's actually a petition against the war uh, signed by several um, institutions and general directors, including the Bolshoi general director of, uh, of Vladimir Urin and the conductor and violinist Vladimir Spivakov. Um, they uh, are circulating a petition among Russian cultural institutions uh, saying uh, that, quote, we now speak not only as cultural figures, but as ordinary people, citizens of our country. Uh, among us are the children and grandchildren of those who fought in the Great Patriotic War. That's what they call World War II. Uh, witnesses and participants of that war. Um, we call for the preservation of the highest value, human life, um, going against uh, Putin in the war. Um, which is extraordinarily brave, and I wouldn't ask that of every single person uh, in Russia to be that outspoken and obvious, but um, I do want to point out that and applaud the heroism of people uh, calling that out in this way. All right, lots more to say, of course, in the conversation as it continues in the days ahead. A little bit of sports talk before we get into the next segment. You you know this is for real when FIFA... The International Soccer Federation, which has got to be one of the most corrupt organizations on the planet, has also banned Russia from playing in the European leagues every year and in the World Cup this December in Qatar and in the European Championships in 2024. One fell swoop, FIFA of all people, has now banned Russia from all of those competitions in soccer. Politics and be our moral compass. <laughs> That's coming up now. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. It has been a slow week, slow month in the opera news world and in no other <laughs> no other field of news. Um, uh, I will say this is this was an idea we had for uh, a while. It was actually an idea we had for President's Day, but for various reasons it didn't end up happening. We wanted to examine the role of uh, political leaders in opera, and um, we are not qualified to comment on certain political situations happening 
abroad at the moment. Um, but Nor do you really want to know what our takes are. <laughs> <laughs> Too spicy. Um, yeah. But I do think that this is a, a great opportunity to explore the relationship between opera and political power. And it's always had this interesting relationship from the very, very beginning, all the way back to the 1600s, uh, where you have the first operas being produced by wealthy patrons. You think of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, you know, uh, being paid for um, by, a, a you know, a nobility. Duke. Yeah. A duke. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, because pound for pound, opera has more or less remained the most expensive live art form out there. Um, besides Disney on ice, besides but, Disney on ice, but that's got a corporation <laughs> footing the bill. <laughs> um, pound for pound opera is so expensive that there's always been this tension between the people who can afford the opera and those who want to criticize it or influence it in some way. Um, Think which of makes, for- which makes actually, which makes the opera we're going to first talk about even more interesting because it represents a shift from operas being performed in the court to being performed in the theater and what mm-hmm. audiences are willing mm-hmm. to pay for. But go on. I, I digress yeah. from you. I think it's an absolutely valid point because, you know, think of like uh, operas during the court of Louis Fourteenth, for example, where... They're all kissing his butt. <laughs> the entire time, to the yeah. point where Louis Fourteenth only allows Lully to uh, to compose operas. Yeah. And you even think of even like the classical era, you know, you you think of like all of these uh, operas written by like Mozart and Salieri, where they'll have a little part at the end that sings the moral. And it's always about how how powerful people should treat people nicely. Hint, 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 please. It's uh, a, please it's pay a me. It's aggressive take to politics. <laughs> <laughs> but if at the only same our time... leaders were enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Um, and then uh, and you also have, you know, uh, just just like a lot of like uh, a lot of a lot of trying to make sure that kings and rulers and nobility are put in a good light when they're written for those people. I want to first talk about uh, an opera, one of the first operas, not one of the first operas, but one of the early operas in the Renaissance, uh, late Renaissance. That uh, let's, really... we, can, we can call it early Baroque, early Baroque, late yeah, Renaissance. Yeah. No, it's not. Monteverdi is is the end of the Renaissance, the beginning of the Baroque. But by the time we get to Popea, we're like at 1643. So he's an an old man. Yeah, he is an old man. This is the last opera. Uh, And this we are talking about the uh, L'Incorazione di Popea, uh, the uh, coronation of Popea. Uh, and this was written for a public audience, as far as we know, in Venice. Uh, Venice had, of course, the first opera houses that were available to the public, and also the first time where you start to see operas not being written exclusively for wealthy elites. That's for several reasons. Part of it is because of Venice's unique history and political structure, which is really unlike anything else in Europe at the time, which is why you still have, uh, even through like the, uh, the days of Beethoven, people trying to pull away from the nobility. But you have early examples of it here. Here. So let's talk a little bit about Popea because it's a fascinating opera. Uh, this is one of the first operas I saw with Oliver Camacho back oh, in the day. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure he'll be correcting me even more about it as I talk <laughs> about it. Uh, it premiered in 1643. 
Uh, and it is because it's Monteverdi's last opera, it differs considerably from a lot of his previous work. There is, in fact, a lot of debate over whether certain parts of the opera are actually written by Monteverdi. A lot of scholars think it was a collaborative effort where Monteverdi was overseeing a lot of younger composers. They think that because of the way certain time signatures are written, uh, certain styles, certain parts where if you're listening to it, it's like, this doesn't quite sound like the rest of the opera. But it's a whole debate. I'll but talk a little bit about it. But it probably was common practice at this yeah, point. It's like, exactly. We got to get a show on. We need one more piece here. Here, you compose that, you know? Exactly. And there was there's something to uh, to uh, the idea of Monteverdi at this point in his career is such like the old master of opera. Like he's teaching with everything he does. He's, he's, he's breaking the mold and he's encouraging these upstart kids to break the mold with him. So I He's think as much a, of a brand as he is a, a content creator. <laughs> much like Disney on Ice, Monteverdi is a brand. Uh, so, uh, obviously, if you know anything about history, Popea was a real person. Uh, she uh, eventually got uh, married to uh, Emperor Nero, who uh, also a real person, who infamously was one of the worst people in history. Uh, even if you d discount a lot of the uh, Christian propaganda at the time, he was pr still pretty darn nasty, murdering people left and right, lots of backstabbing. Including uh, his own mother. Yeah, yeah. yeah especially. And his own, his own child. So. Uh -huh. And his teacher and eventually Popeye, I believe, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, I mean, there are so many parallels to a recent autocrat that was in power <laughs> very, very recently <laughs> in terms of being yeah. loyal only to himself. Exactly. And satisfying his whims and having people in his ear that were very easy to influence. He was very easy to influence as long as they kissed his butt, as long as they flattered him. He's like, oh, yeah, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> and the instant he changes his mind, you're dead, you know, usually. Yeah. Uh, and this opera does a great job of really emphasizing sort of like the childish petulance of Nero as he goes along just demanding what he wants. Uh, backstabbing, having these like, you know, uh, shifts of mercy, which instantly go back to being like, oh, wish I hadn't spared that guy. You know what I mean? And, and, the, other, <laughs> and the other way around, he's completely like unhinged is very much the vibe they're going for. Now, this is kind of, you know, normal for an opera about, you know, uh, the Roman Empire. Um, but I will emphasize that this is setting a lot of precedence for not just operas in the historical context, not just operas about uh, ancient Rome specifically, but in any sort of political uh, opera. You have a lot of intrigue. You have a lot of backstabbing. You have um, a really large emphasis on the personalities of the leaders involved uh, and a lot of, you know, uh, uh, sort of h historical tweaking to make sure that they come across <laughs> historical -ish. as theater. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> You're not being very accurate with the portrayals here, but you are getting the general vibe um, without losing the uh, the sense of a character moving from one moment to the other, which is what makes it so engaging and so interesting even today, so many uh, hundreds of years later. Um, now, the interesting thing, uh, because I think we'll be talking about some more operas that really play on a lot of the political backstabbing and precedents that I'm talking about here, I don't want to dwell on those too much for this opera. What I want to dwell on for this opera is the final duet which is very, very interesting, the Portimiro. Um, basically, what happens is Nero and Popea go through backstabbing, killing, exiling, um, all of these other morally gray figures. No one's a good person in this opera, really. 
Um, but at the very end, these the two worst people in the entire opera, like the worst people you've ever seen, get everything they want. And they stand there and sing this beautiful love duet to each other, this Portimiro, which many may not have been written by Monteverdi, again, which honestly makes it even more intriguing to me that there's this moment of just pure like, we did it. We did it, baby. We we got married. We we've gotten everything we wanted. Everyone. I mean, did, did Britney Spears dead. write all of her songs? <laughs> um, make it more relatable. But it has audience, these so. beautiful, like, close, dissonant harmonies. Not in like a a jarring way. Um, it's very much. Uh, it has this beautiful descending continuo line. Very simple. Very clear. Very unambiguous. It's almost like watching. Uh, propaganda for someone you've never for for a ruler you've never seen before. After the entire opera was basically showing you how, in no uncertain terms, how terrible these people were, and it really works in a dramatically shocking way. Even though the music itself is beautiful, uh, and it really ha- it really sets up this extraordinary dissonance between what the music is telling you. And what the uh, and what the story is telling you, and it's also giving you insight into how contemporary audiences might have interpreted it, how they might have rejected it. Uh, it's just a fascinating final cap where the two worst people you've ever seen get everything they want. I just want to listen to a little bit of um, uh, Kaming Justin Kim and Hannah. Ooh. Blazikova, Blazikova, yeah, Blazikova. Thank you. Conducted by John Elliot Gardner, singing the Portimiro, uh, in the same production that Oliver and I saw way back when. So what you were describing without having the theoretical knowledge, which I mean, I actually appreciate the way you heard it and how you tried to describe it for maybe a non-musically literate audience. Someone who didn't have to go through a course of uh, ear training in theory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what you were describing is the tetrachord or the ground bass or the pasacalia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This yeah. is like, this is a rhetorical device that was used by uh, 
Baroque composers, mm-hmm. um, which actually comes from dance music, but that's another story, um, which is actually signaling destiny. Whenever we get this tetrachord, mm. descending tetrachord, this is a signal to the audience. This is destiny. This is this is fate. This is the fate chord progression. Mm-hmm. So the audience uh, is being told by this music who they understood it at the time in the uh, 17th century that this is what's supposed to happen. You know, the, these yeah. two characters were, were meant to be together. And that um, sort of icky moment that happens right before the chord resolves, that that dissonance where you just feel like, oh, that's that's good, but it's also bad at the same time, you know? That <laughs> uh, that is a major second dissonance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most most uh, consonants begins uh, at a minor third or at a, ma- at a major third. But the major yeah. second, when you hear those two it's notes... It's a minor together, second. The minor second, thank you. It's, yeah, yeah it's three second. versus four. <laughs> uh, when you hear a minor second, uh, I guess so that is uh, referred to as... Even like, closer. Yeah, <laughs> that's referred step. to as... It's, uh, it's as grating as possible. <laughs> <laughs> that's referred to in in French terms as le petit mort, like the little little death, and that is like the pain of love. And it's a word that they use for um, something else. Yeah, that yes. that is the feeling of like you had a big meal and you just cannot wait for this thing to leave your body. And that moment as it's exiting your body, that mm-hmm. is that. <laughs> And another kind of exit as well that will leave to your imaginations. There's a there's a fascinating um, production of this from kind of recently, like maybe the last ten years or so. I think it's the one with Danielle Denise Oliver. You can you might you're probably more familiar and with it than I am. Philippe Jaruski? Yeah, that, where okay. he is singing this to her, and yeah. she is singing it to the Crown. Yeah, which it, yeah. which takes the like everything you said and flips it on its head, and it is yeah. really impactful. In There's terms some... of like our, our modern understanding of power and and um, how absolute power corrupts absolutely, and just our like our modern under understanding of taking on taking on sacrifices as if the ends justify the means to get ahead. It really invites a kind of uh, close reading that I feel like you don't get a lot in early opera. You know. I feel like if you listen to a lot of high Baroque, you know, they're they're stating the moral right moral right there at the end. There's no hiding. Oh, um, and in the prologue too. They're like saying yeah, this like, opera is this for opera you, is Louis. about <laughs> yeah. it's it's kind of like you're writing an essay and you have to make you just like repeat yourself in to this get essay, that word count. <laughs> but but this really isn't like that. It really expresses it completely musically, uh, and it really makes the audience consider why are these powerful people getting away with it just because they can is that the it, way of everything no it's it's can because we... the, the audience knows the end of the story like mm-hmm. in this right. time in history like everybody read about ancient rome and what happened to rome and what happened to the roman empire and who how... did or didn't fiddle while rome burned yeah <laughs> yeah but but there's something like really uh, it invites comparisons to contemporary rulers in the time uh, and obviously, we don't have much of the audience reaction at the time, but there were definitely parallels to certain people in power around Europe at the time who, you know, seeing this inevitability, like it, it there's just something so intriguing about it that I just I always find myself going back to. Well, fast forward about 150 years to the end of Mozart's career. Uh, we are in the Enlightenment and our rulers are supposed to be kind um, and we have enlightened even we have the kindest ruler of all time represented in opera. Um, he 
comes onto the stage. We're talking about the clemency of Titus. It's right there in the title. Um, He comes (laughs) onto the stage. His entrance. The nice guy, Titus. (laughs) Is basically uh, the chorus saying, we love you. You're the best. And him saying, you know, instead of building me, you know, a temple uh, with all the gold, actually, why don't you give that gold to those poor people who got burned <laughs> in the Mount Vesuvius, you know, so, so right. The, one of the first thing he proclaims is like, don't, don't give me these uh, accolades, you know, turn your generosity towards the poor and needy, you know? Um, so I think Nero would have done something. I was like, yeah, or, you know, maybe a, a president who likes gold toilets would be like, yeah, go ahead, turn it into a toilet, you know? <laughs> but we have uh, Emperor Titus, but uh, let's just say that he, you know, represents sort of a benign, I mean, a benevolent democracy. Uh, there's also a little bit of creepiness there uh, because basically in that same scene, at the end of that scene, uh, he tells his best friend that he wants to marry her sister so that he could be closer to him, you know. <laughs> and uh, I've always hypothesized that this is Mozart's gay opera and that <laughs> You know, Titus has such a hard time picking an empress because he really doesn't want to settle down with a woman. He wants to settle down with Sesto, who probably recently completed puberty and is no longer doing gay stuff. And his hormones are raging. And the conspirator, Cutelia, I mean, uh, Vitellia, (laughs) is in his ear. But before... We hear before we talk about uh, Vitellia, uh, let's just hear a little bit of Titus proclaiming that, you know, I'm only happy when my people are happy. This is the aria del più sublime, his entrance aria. That from a performance of one of my favorite tenors who sang this role, Frank Lopardo from the Metropolitan Opera. So, young Sesto, best friend of Titus, probably his gay lover when he was a boy, uh, now really interested in this older woman, Vitalia, who ultimately wants 
to seduce Sesto into convincing uh, Titus to name her the Empress. Uh, and he's like, okay, sure, whatever you want, I'll do it, you know? And when he picks his sister instead, she's like, burn it all down. He's like, she she urges him to go to the capital because she didn't get what she wanted. And she's the daughter of a prior emperor, I think, also, and is part so of So she the... thinks it's her birthright, too. Mm-hmm. Like, to, yeah. yeah. Like, pick me because uh, I have legacy. I'm old money, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when um, Titus chooses uh, Servilia, uh, Vitalia is pissed and tells Sesto to go to the capital. Uh, you know, we're going to be very nice people. We're going to just march to the capital. Um, what did he say? <laughs> um, it's a peaceful protest, you know, like. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sure, sure, Jane. Um, and the capital burns, and uh, Titus is assumed to be dead. Uh, but he shows up in the second act of the opera. Uh, big cliffhanger there during the intermission, and uh, everybody is trying to, you know, get Sesto to confess what he did, why he did it, and he won't because he doesn't want to give up Vitalia, and uh. So Titus has to make a decision about whether or not he executes the person he loves the most. So this is where, you know, the people want to see justice. The people, you know, they who knows how many people were injured or hurt in this burning of the Capitol. And Sesto, I mean, Tito almost lost his life as well. So everybody wants people to become bloodthirsty and like he's got to be the leader who makes the decision about what to do with his old sweet uh, butt boy. And uh, yeah, there's this uh, recitativo acompañado, which we're listening to right now, uh, which is whenever we hear, have an acompañado, that is Mozart saying like, oh, this is the thinking. This is like, what do I do to be or not to be moment in all Mozart operas is the acompañado. Sicuro alla 
And then we have the most gorgeous aria uh, in the opera sung by Sesto, which is basically the only really real love aria of the whole opera uh, where there's true love there. And the music that you hear in Sesto's aria, De Perquesto, can be from, you know, any noble character who is talking about real love. And it's a real heartbreaker. And that leaves... Tito even more confused. But of course, it's the what's going to happen is right there in the title, The Mercy of Titus. Spoiler alert. Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we do get this, you know, tormented aria, a bravura aria, uh, Seal Impero, where uh, he's basically, you know what, folks? It's really hard to be a gay emperor who wants to sleep with his former uh, teenage lover who wants Relatable to stuff. yeah who wants to have sex with my the woman I just named as my wife um, yeah weird love uh, quadrangles it's like there an inverted triangle <laughs> but all is all is forgiven and nobody dies at least not nice. in the second half of the opera yes. Titus is executed by the Praetorian Guard a couple years later. Oh, what happened? Not, you know, who can say? Spoilers was, for Ro- real life. He was two thousand nice. years ago. Roman politics. We, we wanted stronger <laughs> leaders with uh, less uh, man-boy love. We, I mean, you can blame it on that if you want. I'm, I'm, I bet it was something else. But <laughs> so we've talked about we've got Nero full on antihero. We've yeah. got um, we've got Titus who is like so good that it hurts. Yeah. Um, but as opera politics more, it hurts. So. <laughs> continued to with evolve. <laughs> um, there's a lot more ambiguity in some of the later political operas, and one of them that. Um, had politics not just on the stage but off it as well is mm. Verdi's Un Balo in Maschera. Splendidissimo. Ah, yes. um, so this is the opera that Verdi turned to as a subject after he had to get after he had to give up trying to write 
King Lear, which was like his longtime white whale. Interestingly enough, King Lear is also an opera that has like a lot of politics involved and a lot of family. So this scratches some of those similar itches, I think. Um, and there's very and there, verity, <laughs> and there's some um, the, some fertile ground for it to grow from. Um, and and cl- like in classical verity, verity is like a, has always been a very political composer. Um, he there there's the Vittorio Emanuele. Emanuele Re d'Italia that happens to be a Verdi acrostic that helps everyone remember (laughs) that he's really linked to this Italian unification campaign and his sometimes his uh his early works are called the Risorgimento operas because there's almost always this like patriotic call to arms chorus with this um with the soldiers rising up to go fight for the fatherland and so Ballo is premiering around the same time that Italian that the Italian peninsula becomes um politically unified and Vittorio Emanuele becomes the king uh and in classic Verdi style he combines these political engagement of his Italian patriotism with his love of like interpersonal conflict and turmoil uh and the political and personal become really intertwined and how and the like the motivations for what is done for a personal reason and what is done for a political reason like really intersect and sometimes even counteract each other and it becomes so like twisted that you can't even tell who is doing what for what pure like there are no pure reasons mm. everything is in black and white there's nothing as straightforward as just like a call to arms let's rise up and um overthrow those austrians um <laughs> and this this kind of these kind of cross pressures like usher in a uh, a moral ambiguity that I think is really um, typical of operas in like the mid 19th century and would continue into the 20th century. This Umbalo and Masca is an, is an opera with a pretty long history. It's based on a real execution of King Gustav III at a masquerade at the Swedish opera house. Um, Gustav III was a bit of an enlightened despot. He seized power in Sweden uh, through a coup to try to weaken the power of the aristocracy um, but was relatively liberal by um, by that kind of token, you know. At the we're talking about like the Catherine the Great type of liberal, mm. not like an actual, <laughs> not you know, like, that that moderate Catherine the Great. Yeah. <laughs> there are a couple historical characters that made that did survive into the actual plot, like Ulrika, the fortune teller. Is a real. She was a real fortune teller and medium that oh, King really? Gustav the Third did go to. I found this in my research. It's insane. That's wild. So this is the in Act One, Scene Two. He goes to this fortune teller, and there's the, the there's a cooked up love plot that's totally an invention of the opera librettist. But in real life, he did go to this medium six years before he was killed, and she told him to beware of a man with a mask and a sword, and. Even, and they all wrote it off, but he went back to the palace, and it turns out that, like, not long after that, he may have encountered one of the men who would go on to be the co-conspirators, and he did have a sword. So this this is like, you know, if it seems too good to be true and convenient on the internet nowadays, you're supposed to figure that it's probably misinformation. Maybe this is inf- misinformation. I don't care. The story's too good. He was eventually assassinated with a mask, too. So, like, what you going to do there? Clearly, she can read the future. Yeah. So um, you've heard me talk about assassinating kings a couple times. And if you're familiar with um, 
European politics in the late 19th century, you know that that is not something that they really liked to let people talk about very much. It no. wasn't an idea that was uh, particularly politically allowed. So this opera is probably best known, for, besides for its awesome music, uh, for the long and tumultuous relationship that Verdi had with the censors trying to get it onto the stage. Um, which is another, that's a, that, that was another like long, long pattern throughout Verdi's career. Rigoletto famously had a lot of, you know, back and forth with the censors over what was allowed to do. And some of the changes that they demanded in this opera were really similar. You know, he couldn't be a king. He had to be downgraded to a duke at first. And then it couldn't be in um, modern day Christian Europe. It had to be in medieval Europe back when they believed in things like fortune tellers. Like, that's fine. Um, He can't be. And then he couldn't be a sovereign. He just had to be someone powerful. Um, And he couldn't be having an affair with the wife because that's not something that's immoral. And kings can't be immoral because they're they're, there are moral leaders. So it had to be a sister instead. Um, And there couldn't be a ballet and they couldn't show the murder on stage. And um, it had to take back place backstage and um they couldn't show the scene where the conspirators were drawing lots to see who was going to kill him and uh Verdi eventually just like threw up his hands and said I'm not doing this uh and Fair. so this opera that was supposed to take place uh premiere in Naples got delayed a couple years and ended up premiering in Rome a few years later um with most of those changes he was able to get the censors to back off on but one that they just absolutely insisted on was that it could not be a european king and so they solved the problem with the most absurd shortcut i have ever heard of (laughs) which was setting it in puritanical colonial boston Um, a city known for its love of fortune telling and masquerades and murder um (laughs) <laughs> it that's up there for me with like um Manolisco who goes to the desert of New Orleans. <laughs> it's like when they recast a sitcom like in the nineties with a whole new actor, like between season two and season three. Like in front like, of like, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. So and that was that was the way the standard way that this opera was presented, like up and as late as the 1980s there's a production mm. of this from the met with luciano pavarotti that's still set in boston with with the um with the names that are where he's like the count of War, ricardo count of warwick instead of gustavo king of sweden mm. um the another change that did happen to the libretto that and en- that ended up having some historical significance interestingly enough is that when um ulrica the fortune teller was no longer this real life medium uh, they had her specified as being a black woman. That is not the word they used. Hmm. Uh, but and this was the opera where Marian, the the role in the opera where Marian Anderson made her Met debut, the first hmm. black singer to sing a role at the Met, uh, in the fifties. Uh, but it's it is just like the funniest misunderstanding of American history that has ever happened. Like even <laughs> in the eighteen hundreds, Boston was still like a relatively morally morally conservative place that would like raise objections about what was offensive so they just like never read any newspapers about america ever clearly yeah um but just like the i love i love that how in this opera like the winds of turmoil are blowing like both on this family drama that seems so small scale that ends up that like the man whose wife the king is in love with is the one who is his best friend who ends up having to be the one to kill him in a bizarre twist of fate and just the way that they get so tangled up with each other and that really comes to a head at this great great 
ensemble at the end of the second act where um Oscar the page comes to invite everyone to the mask masquerade like right after they made their plan to assassinate him so everyone is singing at cross purposes it's chaos but it's beautiful chaos I cannot get that out of my head. Like I, once I hear that, that's it. I'm done for the day, for the, probably the next couple of days. That's the only thing I'm going to be singing. So. And that that was Piero Capuccilli, Riri Grist, and Katia Ricciarelli, uh, as long as as well as the ensemble of the Royal Opera House in London with Claudio Abbado conducting. Oh, un ballo in Mosca. I love this opera so much, and I, I don't know why it's not done more. Why it's not more popular? I know that the role of Amelia is really hard to cast, um, but man, uh, I I think it's one of Verdi's like across the board strongest works. No. Like in oh yeah, everything dramatically actually makes sense. Which like in Trovatore, I'm fine writing off the fact that this plot absolutely would never ever 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 happen. <laughs> but this one, like you don't even have to make excuses for it. Like yeah. the drama, the is fortune real. teller is real in this one. Yeah, really. yeah. The, even the I, fortune I had no idea. Was real. I didn't. I didn't know. That was that's wild. And for there to be a second soprano part that is juicy and fun to sing, mm-hmm. and the baritone aria is one of the all time best baritone arias and then all the music for uh ricardo is just so delicious uh masse forse per day is like pfft, one of the best uh cavatinas ever written and on top uh, of that it's it's also like an opera that maybe has the best cast of any opera recording of all time which is the linesdorf one we're we're slipping this in at the end of black history month <laughs> but we've got leontine price in her prime shirley verrett nice. in her prime riri oh. grist in her prime carlo yeah. Bergonzi oh, in his prime robert merrill in his prime it is just oh. like top to tail incredible <laughs> amazing i think we want to jump in with one more um, which I'm going to take over here. So we've heard a lot of, you know, from the from the early days of opera, sort of the relationship between rulers and uh, the politics surrounding presenting those people on the stage. I want to jump uh, quite ahead to uh, Nixon in China, uh, which is news, not going to be a news news news. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's that's what actually what I want to, what I want to point out because in the 20th century you have a 
the start of a different interpretation of the nature of power in Europe and in America and across the world, really. Um, you uh, Theater has a specific limitation when you're talking about opera base, uh, when you're talking about leader, leaders and uh, political uh, events. Because in an opera, especially, or in, a, or in a play, you have these individuals giving performances. You have um, someone going up there and becoming sort of the avatar for everything going on politically in some form or fashion, whether or not it's censored or not. And uh, in, the 20, in the 20th century, you start to see more like mass movements, um, especially with, you know, the communists, fascists uh, of the early 20th century, these uh, larger, this larger understanding of politics as a, as a broader sort of economic force through uh, through like Marxist interpretations of history. And um, and that that poses a big problem if you're trying to create a play. This is why you have like, you know, Bertolt Brecht doing all his weird stuff, you know, trying to <laughs> make him feel personalize it. Exactly. Um, but that's not very dramatic. Uh, and, and on purpose, it's not very dramatic. Um, but I want to talk about sort of the return of the drama with sort of the post through the postmodern lens of John Adams writing an opera about Nixon going to China only a few years after it actually happened. As a matter of fact, I believe this, the 50th anniversary of Nixon's uh, visit to China just happened a couple days ago as we're, as we're recording this, which was just a wild coincidence. Um, but basically, this is, a, this is a very specific historical event that was a big deal, but it's, it's, not, it's not a war. It's not an assassination. Nobody dies. It's a diplomatic event that went pretty well. You know, and you, uh, uh, unlike uh, uh, from a distance, you're like, how is that going to be an effective opera? Um, but the answer is by change, by really interrogating in a very postmodern way how the audience uh, is responding to the events on stage in conjunction with how the audience would have been the audience uh, at home would have been viewing this historical event between uh, between uh, uh, the United States and China finally coming together after years of isolation on China's part. Uh, it really uh, it really comes down to the quality of the libretto. Alice Goodman does a phenomenal job of really um, making sure that that every leader feels personal and like, you know, dramatic is a dramatic character, but it's an ensemble cast. It's not about the two giants, Nixon and Mao. There it's Nixon, Mao, Zhou Enlai, uh, um, the wife of Mao Zedong, um, you know, uh, rather it's, iconically. It's an <laughs> exactly. It's an ensemble cast for something that you that, you know, 100 years earlier would have probably just been about Nixon and Mao, you know, um, famously, uh, uh, there's even like little touches like uh, Henry Kissinger, whom John Adams and Alice Goodman do not like. Um, for many understandable reasons, uh, they basically uh, give him uh, an attack of uh, diarrhea and make him leave the stage before all of the big closing ensembles, where everyone is <laughs> finding like the like like what how like doing those big final moral arguments and really showing the culminations of their characters. This moment in time, Henry Kissinger sitting on the toilet. It's great. Um, this is really about perception because that's what the event was. It was about how it appeared on the news to everyone seeing it and what the significance of it was 
uh, as uh, as propaganda for both sides, as uh, as a genuine political coming together. It's got all of the the meat of that big political event with these big political leaders really just viewing it as a moment of time, moment in time and really giving an opportunity to, for the audience to say, this is a departure from what really happened. Why is it? Why are we departing now? Why is this so different from what was happening in reality? It's not little tweaks to make it more dramatic. It's completely leaving reality to make to make a, a ballet about uh, a woman getting beaten real. You know, it's uh, it is very much it, it's a kind of opera that in a very postmodern way challenges you to look at this event as a fictional event but also realizing just how real and just how immediate and how recently it happened. Pretty much everyone in this opera was still alive when it premiered. None of them liked it. Um, ev everything is real, but everything is also so unreal at the same time because of this layer of propaganda through the screen that people were viewing the event on. Uh, I just want to like close a little bit with uh, a little bit of that famous aria, News. Sung by James Madalena. This is from the studio recording conducted by Edo DeVart. Colors glow, livid, through drips onto the lawn. Dishes are washed and homework done. The dog and grandma fall asleep. A car has passed, playing loud pop. Is gone. As I look down the road, I know America is good at heart. An old cold warrior piloting towards an unknown shore through shoals. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, let us wrap up this show this week. Wow, this is a exhausting show good call bad call it's how we finish every show whatever the weather oliver camacho well just since we didn't have a two-minute drill today i did want to congratulate uh megan moore eric faring blake denson and eric grendahl and timothy murray uh who were the george london foundation competition winners each of them taking home ten thousand large and Ooh, i know congratulations um, and I'm actually disappointed in the George London Foundation for not making Cody Bowers, the countertenor, one of this year's winners. Uh, Cody Bowers, that's a name you will hear in the future. He is incredible. I told him he was going to win. He didn't. So I have, <laughs> I have egg on my face right now. Uh, but he will win. He, wow, that is a rare admission from he all of He will win. He will <laughs> Weston Williams. Um, well, going back to uh, um, the current situation in Eastern Europe, uh, I do want to highlight uh, two singers, Elena Garancha and Piotr Bachala, who have both canceled all of their upcoming uh, concerts in Russia. Uh, and they both posted uh, statements uh, uh, against the war. 
Uh, and uh, Alina Garancha is bas basically called it, you know, a, a, a criminal sort of a war and music uh, has to unite. And what what would the world be, she says, without cultural exchanges between each other? Um, and uh, Piotr Bacala, unlike a certain soprano we might have, might have talked about earlier uh, in a uh, statement on Instagram, said, I am not a politician and I have no influence on political decisions, but I am an artist and I can use my voice to express my opposition to the war that mm. takes place just across the border of my beloved motherland. Uh, and I just think it's really uh, great to see artists standing up for what's right, using their political power for uh, their their image for political good. Uh, what a thought, you know, and I uh, just wanted to, uh, you know, give a shout out to Pyotr Bachala and good, good tone quality. And Russia has been sanctioned. You're not going to get those beautiful tenor and mezzo-soprano notes. Sorry about it. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave. Uh, congratulations to friend of the show, Janai Breger, and hopefully soon to be friend of the show, Isaac Savage, for stepping in at the last minute as soloist for uh, the Beethoven Ninth Symphony with Chicago Symphony Orchestra this weekend. Uh, it was a really emotional series of concerts. Uh, Jennifer Johnson Cano was the mezzo, Tarek Nazmi was the bass, all delightful, and there was really something different about singing about brotherhood and unity on Thursday of last week. Yeah. There was one particularly beautiful voice in the choir, sort of in the in the in that mezzo soprano range, just kind of, you know, some I don't know, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but it was one person in particular. Uh, sounded fully, amazing. Fully sobbing, that was me. That was me. <laughs> I watched uh Joel Cohn's film The Tragedy of Macbeth, which is uh, with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. It's shot entirely in black and white. It is utterly brilliant the entire design looks like an adolf appia set and for all you scenic designer nerds out there you know what i'm talking about adolf appia the way is that, that this is that thing a drinking cue you could drink on that there you go. it is so gorgeously lit it's beautifully acted it's less than two hours and it's some of the most conversational intelligible shakespeare i think i've ever heard that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com. Again, if you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get that full show. Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow on Apple Podcasts. You just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin. A couple folks wrote in last week. I need to get them their merch. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about operas. You come down from your fat Tuesday punchy sugar high. We're back with an all-new show next week when we take a deep dive into the Metropolitan Opera's just-announced 22-23 season. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more solidarity with Ukraine. Join us. <laughs>